So this morning, we want to look at the idea of salvation, its depth, its richness. And so the reason I've captioned this, the mosaic of salvation, is a mosaic is composed of a number of little pieces that when looked at perhaps individually, might not communicate as much. But when you put them together, obviously a larger and more beautiful image comes from that. So the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he kind of gives us the historical side of the gospel. In that passage, he talks about how Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised again according to the scriptures. So in that passage, we see what is sort of the historical, the factual element, that Jesus really did what he did. But then in the letter that he writes to Romans, he offers sort of Paul's version of the gospel. It's a much more theological and thoughtful, very carefully structured argument. In fact, the Liberty Law School actually uses the book of Romans to teach its students how to make an argument. Uh, Romans is a very carefully crafted uh, piece of correspondence. So the passage that we want to start off with is in Romans chapter 3. He's already described how sin affects Jew and Gentile alike. And then he tells us that God's an impartial judge. And then we get stuck with this idea that everybody who sins is going to die. So the question is, what do you do in light of that? So in Romans 3.24, now this, the passage is actually 3.21 through 26. If you want to get the theological components of salvation, that's where Paul puts it, when you understand that. And we're going to look at a one sentence in the middle of that, and we're going to pull out three of the major terms that Paul uses to begin to understand what God has done when he has saved us, what his rescue program includes and why we need it. So in Romans 3.24, he says, talking about Jesus now, he says, look, the law is not going to rescue you, so we're going to need something else. So he talks about us being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So you get three rather large theological terms in one breath. Justification, redemption, and propitiation. Usually, if you're first time reading through the Bible, you have no idea what that means. <laughs> so let's kind of take, we're going to unpack this. And we're going to kind of reverse how Paul has it here. We're going to go from propitiation to redemption or, and then to justification. So John in his first letter, and he's writing, he makes this claim in 1 John 4.10. He's saying, now in this passage, he's just said that God is love. And now he's saying, in this is love. In other words, the self-sacrificing, the other-directed love that he's talking about, in this is love, not that we loved God, but he loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, the word that he uses there in the Greek is hilasmos. The word that Paul used for propitiation in his passage is hilasterian. They came from the same group. The hilasterian is actually the Greek word that we use for the cover, the kephir, on the Ark of the Covenant, which one day a year, the high priest would come in and sprinkle the blood of atonement. In other words, 364 days a year, sacrifices happening, but you needed this one day to cover every sin that was missed throughout all the other sacrificial practices. 
So propitiation comes from the sacrificial language. It's used in the temple. Now, what propitiation means is I have to do something with the fact that God is not pleased with my sin. In fact, in, when Paul describes it as he opens the letter to Romans, in, one, in, in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation for, the, for everyone who believes, the Jew first and then to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And then he says, that it, it's in there from faith to faith. The righteous man shall live by faith. Then in the very next breath, in Romans 1.18, he says, so I love the, the power of God for salvation, but he says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, they, if you're suppressing something, it's because you know it and you're trying to put it down. You're trying to push it away. So the fact that we need to be propitiated, that we need to turn away or appease God's anger, is because he's angry with sin. Pardon me. So why would God be angry with sin? Well, obviously, he's the author of life. When you, st- when you spend a lot of time studying Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, you see the creation and then the fall depicted in that. And in Eden, we find the ideal setting that God desires for us. In other words, in effect, what he's saying, he says, I made you in my image to dwell in my presence. And that one brief passage, it says that Adam and Eve literally walked with God in the presence, in his presence, unmediated, direct contact with the living God in this idyllic, perfect situation. And in the middle of that is what? There's a tree of life. All images of the fact that God is the origin of life, the source of life, and the very life he desires for us is a rich, full life lived in his presence with all the blessings that flow from that. And then by the time you turn to Genesis 3 through 11 and you see the the fall, and you see the depth and how sin just degrades all of life from fracturing the individuals to murder within the family to the very social structures such that he has to answer sin by saying, there's so much violence on the earth, I have to eliminate the very image I put there. So we do get the sense when Paul says, oh, by the way, God is going to be angry with your sin because it is destructive. It demeans and depresses. It corrupts every good thing which God gives us. That's why I like the passage from G.K. Chesterton. The fall is actually an encouraging picture of life. It means it can be fixed. It isn't, we're not hopelessly stuck, and that's what we look at for salvation. So the idea of peasing God's wrath and anger is not something that I can do. When I sin... He necessarily responds. He's holy. He's utterly good. There is only goodness in him. He cannot tolerate anything less than that holy perfection. And yet constantly from the very pages of Genesis on, we see his grace and mercy. Cain deserved to be executed on the spot. He discovers that the blood of Abel is literally crying to the ground, out of the ground to God for justice. And God, instead of giving him justice, puts a mark, sends him on his way. Even in there, we see his mercy. 
But Cain was not able to turn away his anger. None of us. Jesus has to become the propitiation for our sins. He has to turn away the anger of God. We were made for life. When we pursue death and corrupt his creation, we can't imagine him being anything other than angry with us. So when Paul starts in there, it's necessary for Jesus to appease that wrath. That's kind of the first step. God is going to become angry. When Jesus went to the temple, he wasn't pleased when they had turned the temple into a marketplace. In effect, what they were doing is they prevented both the Gentiles and the women from engaging in proper worship at the temple. It was the only place they could properly do so. But you'll notice in one of the gospel accounts, does Jesus just fly off the hanger, fly off the handle in his anger? No. Mark records that he, he, he weaves a cord of whips. <laughs> in other words, he sat down and took a while. God's anger and my anger are not the same thing. When I get angry for someone for cutting me off on my own private road, it's not the same thing, is it? How dare you intrude on my space? That's not the anger that God is talking about. His anger is righteous. It is just. And that's why Paul would say, you can become angry, but just do not sin, because anger often leads to that, as we see in the case of Cain and Abel. So he's vigorously opposed to sin and evil, and he will get angry and his wrath is there. Okay, so first we have propitiation. I need to appease that wrath. Secondly, comes the idea of redemption. Now, redemption is a word that really comes from the marketplace. Obviously, in ancient Israel, when Israel takes possession of the land, they're given each tribe is given their portion within the land, um, with the exception of the Levites. So if in the course of Israel's history... Um, famines would come, there would be economic downturns, and people would lose things and often have to sell their land. Often they would have to kind of engage in indentured servitude, selling themselves to another family because they had no means of income, no safety nets. And so what would happen is, say the family who still had a right to the property, at some point now they become flush, they can redeem or purchase back the property which had been given. If you indentured yourself into someone which was it's really, the Old Testament doesn't have a lot of slavery. It's really, you think of them more as servants. Um, they're basically saying, look, if I come here and now I'll have food and clothing, I'll have all of that. But it wasn't supposed to be for a lifetime. So in the story of Ruth, for example, when Boaz uh, purchases Ruth, he does so as a goel. A goel is a kinsman redeemer. He's a person in a position able to pay a certain price, redeem them, from their circumstances, to buy them out, to liberate them, and now make them free again, reestablishing them where they belong. And obviously, the great redemptive event of the Old Testament is the Exodus story. Israel's been enslaved. I mean, they start off really well with Joseph, but now at some point, Pharaoh's changes. Well, after all, it's 400 years. And so the great redemptive event is the idea that you have been brought out, you have been redeemed, in that case, redeemed from slavery. Now remember, for Israel, they're not so much redeemed from sin, they're simply redeemed from slavery. And that would be economic, social, religious, everything. They had, you know, completely, they were enculturated by a foreign culture that threatened the very worship of God, which is why God calls them out. So in Mark 10, we see probably one of the famous 
redemption or ransom passages in which Jesus says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So that ransom is that payment price. In other words, I am going to be the redemptive price which is going to be paid in order to liberate us from slavery. So here in redemption in the marketplace, where propitiation looks at the anger of God in response to sin, redemption focuses on our collective plight that slave, that sin enslaves us, that it will capture us. The first time the word sin is used in the Old Testament is with Cain. Cain is now angry with his brother and his countenance has fallen. So God questions, why are you so angry? He said, if you're not careful, that thing called sin is crouching at your door. It's a picture of a wild beast ready to pounce. And God describes that sin by saying, its desire is for you. Is it going to master you? Are you going to master it? Unfortunately, for most of us, sin has mastered us at one point or another. And that's part of the plight that his redemption is about. It's about eliminating the slavery to sin. And as Paul describes it, you turn slavery to sin into slavery to righteousness. You're freed from sin so that you are now free to obey God. That's part of the big shift that goes on in our salvation. And then as Paul describes it further in his letter to the Ephesians 1.7, he says, in him, again in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, notice it's plural, according to the riches of his grace. So there Paul ties just intimately our redemption and the forgiveness of sins. My sin has made God angry. I need to turn that away. I can't do that. Jesus does it. Now he then, in his, sac- in his sacrifice, liberates me from the power of sin. That's why I love the song that his blood washes me white as snow. It's ransomed me. It has, he has paid the price that I owed. And therefore, we get to celebrate what that means. So, Certainly we understand that Jesus redeems us. He liberates us from slavery to sin, something in and of itself to be celebrated. Um, And then Titus, uh, he also claims that, referring to Jesus, he gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, Purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. So there we see part of the transition. I have been redeemed from slavery to sin and unrighteousness in order that I might engage in good works. I'm not saved by them, but once I'm saved out of them, now I get to do what I was called to do. In fact, the whole letter of Titus, he works through that theme very dramatically. If you want to get a notion of how our salvation leads to good works. Titus is a great book for that. So I've turned away his anger and been redeemed all because of what Jesus does in the cross. And then the one that we often focus on, probably to the exclusion of the other two, it's the idea of justification. So we've gone from the temple, we've gone from the marketplace, and now we're going to the law courts and to justification. 
So as Paul is working through his argument in Romans by chapter 5, he says, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation, in other words, judgment to all men, no one escapes, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. In this passage from Romans 5, 12 through 20, he is comparing Adam as a type of Christ, and he's made the argument that where Adam sinned and brought death to all, Jesus has died and now brought life to all. And that's what justification is about. So when he uses the word here, transgression or trespass, the idea is that you have broken the law. You are objectively guilty of breaking the law. You're driving down the road, 40 mile an hour speed limit, you go 70, you have objectively violated the law. Doesn't matter whether you intended to, didn't intend to, <laughs> speedometer doesn't work. The point is you are objectively guilty. Justification is a legal act where he justifies us. Now, you're in the courtroom and he's got the file and you know what the file contains. <laughs> it's everything you've ever done wrong. And you're thinking, how am I going to plead? It's going to be guilty because you're objectively guilty of having violated his law. Only, he now says, in effect, you're acquitted. I deem you not guilty. I justify you. I clear you of guilt because of what Jesus has done. So, when he declares me just, I'm still a sinner. Martin Luther famously referred to Christians as justified sinners. He doesn't transform my character in that moment. He transforms forensically my legal standing in his presence. In other words, he doesn't, you know, there's a little magic wand that makes us righteous and good when we come to believe in Jesus. I just understand that as I'm objectively guilty, he, in his mercy, does not give me the justice I deserve. Okay? People come to me and, you know, upset, you know, with God. You talk with atheists and all kinds of interesting folks. And I say, you know, the worst that you can expect, the worst thing that God will give you is justice. The, as poorly as he will treat you, he will give you precisely what you deserve. <laughs> if you would like precisely what you deserve from God, he is more than happy to grant that to you. I, however, personally, really appreciate his mercy and grace <laughs> because if I actually deserve his wrath, I'm not sure I want that. No, in fact, I'm absolutely sure I do not want that. I want his mercy. So his justification is something that's beautiful and rich. So again, let's look. So it's kind of the justification is the positive counterpart to propitiation where the one is turning away his anger, now he's transformed that into his mercy. And now he is absolving me of guilt when I genuinely trust in him. And then my life begins to reflect, I really believe that. So let's turn back again to what Paul said in Romans 3, 24, 25. Being justified, I have been cleared of guilt, even though I'm completely guilty, why? Because it's a gift of his grace, all right, 
It came through the redemption. In other words, he liberated me. He purchased me from slavery, which Jesus did for me. And then he displays Jesus publicly as my propitiation to turn away his anger. That's what the cross does. And the propitiation is what? In his blood. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, he does the right thing for the right reason. Because of the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. There's an interesting passage in, uh, back in Genesis where God enters into a covenant with Abraham. It's in Genesis 17. Now, in the ancient Near East, when you entered into a covenant, <laughs> we live in very sanitized times. In the ancient world, what you'd do is you'd take a series of animals, you would slaughter them, and you would literally split them in half. So that's going to take a while. And you would lay them on the ground, and in between them, there would be a path with a trough. And the blood of the dead animals would pour into the trough, and then those entering into the covenant would literally walk through <laughs> that bloody path saying, if either one of us breaks the covenant, <laughs> may this happen to us. You talk about putting your signature on the dotted line. That is a serious commitment. Now, what's interesting, when God enters into the covenant with Abraham, Abraham does not walk through that. God passes through that. And the reason God passes through that is that he knows he will remain faithful. He knows Abraham and everyone who follows him will not. Even in that, God signals his grace and mercy in entering into a covenant with us. He knows exactly who we are. He loves us and cares for us, but he has no illusions about our ability to be completely faithful. Because if he required us to walk through that, then we would get justice. <laughs> but because we don't walk through that, he's able to shower us with his mercy and the gift of his grace. So in these three metaphors, these three pictures that help round out salvation, we begin to appreciate, I think, a little bit better what he is saving us from. Mainly, he's saving us from ourselves. So this is what he's saving us from. But the next three are images that save us into. In other words, now that I've been rescued, if someone rescues me from the drowning ocean, I don't just hang out and I have to get on with my life. I've been saved to do something. Most people who, who get second chances of life perceive it like that and think, oh my gosh, I, need to, I should probably make use of my life. I shouldn't waste it doing silly, empty things. So that brings us to the other, three, the other side of that when we think about reconciliation, the idea of adoption, and then of sanctification itself. So when Paul's working through Romans, one of the things he talks about is the fact that having Jesus having rescued us from sin, the whole point of that is restoration, or the big word that he uses in Romans 5.10, is we are now reconciled. For if while we were enemies, in other words, we were hostile to God, we, had no, we, wanted nothing, we were literally his enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, having been restored, we shall be saved by his life. And we'll talk about that a little as we go through this further. 
So justification takes care of my legal standing. But reconciliation now confirms the relationship that I was designed and built to fulfill. When he fashions us in his image, he intends for us to live in his presence. The whole notion of the tabernacle, the temple, everything is always about God dwelling in our midst, him being in our presence. It's a fallen and broken world, and yet as a holy God, he makes sure there's a process and a system whereby he can be present with us. It tells you how desperate he is to love us and to let us know he loves us. So the idea of reconciliation is this whole restoration of relationship. If you recall when we talked about the Trinity some time back, the, the Father, Son, and Spirit represent the ideal communion of persons. In other words, before the universe existed, rel- communal relations of love and honor existed. And that's what he desires for us. Who he is, the very character that he is, is part of what he wants us to participate in. So he rescues us from sin. He restores us into him in order that we might first begin to appreciate this and then have it begin to flow out into others. That's what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a spectacular passage when you read all through kind of the second half in this chapter. And so Paul is saying this to the church in Corinth. Now, all these things are from God who first reconciled us to himself. We're not reconciling God to us. He is reconciling us to him. He is in the right. He's the one who's passed through the bloody animals. He's been faithful to the covenant. We have not. We're the ones who have been enslaved to sin. We're the ones who have broken that covenant, yet he is willing to say in his grace and mercy, I want you to come back. I have cleared that path for you. So, God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling again. Here's God reconciling the world. Here's Christ reconciling the world to himself not counting our trespasses against us, and he has committed now to us the word of reconciliation. So now part of my salvation process is that I, you know, Jesus says, look, if you appreciate being forgiven, then you'll be forgiving toward others. If you appreciate the fact that you've been restored to right relationship, you live where you should, you're probably going to want to share that with others and attempt to reconcile and restore. That's why Jesus offers In the uh, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers, the peacemakers. Reconciliation is about making peace. It's about reestablishing and bringing the shalom that God desires, the order that he built into the cosmos. Now that we are restored to him, that's our marching orders. That's our task. That's why I love, you know, I teach at the mission. Trace and I work in the, you know, we work with some... It's really fun to work with some busted, broken up people because they really appreciate restoration and, and healing. And you love to see when that process takes place in their life and they, they celebrate that life and restoration. So in other words, when you get restored into right relationship with God and you experience that, it's kind of hard not to want others to share in that. It's like finding, you know, your favorite dessert, you know, 
You may hide it around the house so others don't eat it, but you do let others know how good it is. All right, so the reconciliation isn't simply restoration. That's a great thing. But that restoration is so good, it literally means I'm adopted, you're adopted as sons and daughters, <clears throat> pardon me, into the family of God. That is pretty good. So in Romans, so Paul talks about sin, God's an impartial, he talks about, you know, how Jesus does this, you need to have the faith of Abraham, you know, you, you look at the law, isn't going to save you, but then he gets into the spirit in Romans chapter 8, and now he talks about membership in the family of God as a further expression of that reconciliation, and he says this in Romans 8, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons and daughters of God, for you have not received a spirit of slavery, right, you've been redeemed, so slavery doesn't matter in terms of to sin, leading to fear again. In other words, I'm a slave to sin. He's still angry at me with his wrath. No, I'm not. Fear is gone. Slavery to sin is gone. You have received literally a spirit of adoption of sons and daughters by which we collectively cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is just an Aramaic term. It's a term of intimacy, dad or daddy, whatever that intimate little term would be that exists within families. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are, in fact, children of God. And if children, heirs. So not only have I been restored to God, I'm part of his family. Now I'm getting the privilege of family, which means intimacy with the Father in, in intimate terms. He's not this distant God. God is a title. It's not his name. His name is Yahweh or Yahweh Yireh or all kinds of wonderful names, Jesus Yeshua, which means Yahweh is my salvation. These are the names of God. God's just a title. But we get to call him Father. I love that Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father who is in heaven. He's not a distant, terrifying God, although, yes, he is. But he's also our Father. So if children, then we're also heirs of God and we're fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. So the commitment to the family isn't, oh boy, you only get the upside. There are both. There are the privileges of being adopted into the family of God, literally heirs of God. In other words, whatever is coming to Jesus as a result of his efforts on our behalf, we get to participate. That's why I love the passage in John. He says, hey, look, if I'm going away, I'm building a place for you. <laughs> you know? I'm not leaving you here on your own. I'm actually, you know, I continue my efforts on your behalf. <laughs> he continues to pray for us from up there. He continues to make ready his kingdom for us to participate in. It's good to be part of the family of God. It's an enjoyable, beautiful blessedness that we just sometimes may take for granted, as you might even in your own family. What we see is an expression of intimacy and warmth. So think of that. You've gone from being an enemy of God, anticipating the wrath and justice of God, to experiencing his grace, his mercy, and now you're literally now get to share in the very things that Jesus will share because of his efforts on our behalf, that he has always been one who is acting for us. So it brings us finally to the idea of sanctification, which we often hear and this kind of helps us. Paul's 
talked in the past couple of weeks about how he must increase and we must decrease. Well, when you look at this mosaic of salvation, you realize that all the sinful past necessarily has to diminish. It needs to decrease. And if you've been restored to God, if you have been adopted into the family of God, just a natural process, you're going to start to take on the family resemblance. (laughs) You'll start to look like you belong in the family. And that's what sanctification, the word is about that. And sanctification um, is a kind of a two-step. In other words, sanctification is both an event. In other words, the moment you come to Christ, you are sanctified in that you are set apart for God. He sets you apart as one of his own, as one of his family members. But it is also a process. So, for example, when when, when Paul greets the church in Corinth... He tells them that they have been sanctified, set apart. But if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, they're hardly an entirely flawless and holy group of people. <laughs> I refer to that book as the book of first Southern Californians. So again, Paul, when he talks about sanctification, sanctification really follows our justification. We have been cleared of guilt as an act of his grace, and therefore, in theory, you're not going to add to the guilty file that he had back then. Now, are we going to be perfect? No, none of us will be. Do we improve? Ideally, yes. That's kind of why we do this collectively. If you were set on your own as the Lone Ranger, it would be difficult. The reason we come together to receive instruction and encouragement is that we might collectively get better. I mean, each of us is gifted differently. Everyone here has something to offer. There's no doubt about that. Each is in the image of God, loved by God, here for a purpose. So we do this together. So as Paul writes, because remember, when Paul, when anyone, anytime you read like a letter, it's, it's never written to church leaders. It's written to the entire church, to be read publicly in the church. It's addressed to all of us, always, the text that's what you got to love about it. There's no secret code among some higher echelon. It's the word he gives to all of us. So, and the word that's used for sanctification is hagiosmos. Um, it's related to holiness. And sometimes in your Bible, sometimes it'll say sanctification. Sometimes it'll say holiness. kind of depends on which translation you're working from. But here in Thessalonians, even in ESV, it jumps back and forth. He says, for this is the will of God. And you got to like that. You know, people come, you know, I want to know what the will of God for my life is. Well, here's part of it. (laughs) Your sanctification, your holiness, your being set apart, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness, same word, hagiosmos, and honor not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all these things. There's that side of him, doesn't like sin. And we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but for holiness or for hegiosmos. So in other words, the opening three tell me, I need to turn away that wrath. I need to deal with this slavery to sin. I'm guilty as all get out. Great. Jesus handles all of that, but he does more than that. 
Jesus then restores me to God, brings me into his family, and makes it literally possible that I can imitate him, that I can take on the very attributes of Jesus. Think simply of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those. When we begin to embrace those, it's because I am decreasing and he is increasing. So in the mosaic of salvation, you see God doesn't just rescue us. He puts in place enough to make our lives the blessedness that he has always offered to us. So it's in sanctification, it's just kind of coming to grips with a whole new life. I mean, after all, you are called a new, you're not simply a new creature. The word is actually, you're a new creation. You have been completely renewed. The Spirit of God literally dwells within you. Um, He has completely cleansed you, made you white as snow. Um, There's not a lot he's overlooked in this process. (laughs) There's no part of you that he has not redeemed, no part of you that he does not continue to love and trust that you will grow in into his arms, into deeper and more loving relationship. So, hopefully that expands that simple word of salvation into something a bit richer. Nothing new, but perhaps a new way of perceiving it, of looking at what God does for us. So, with that, we turn to communion. I can't imagine a much better message to think that we get to celebrate our salvation than the redemptive efforts that Jesus puts together for us. So when Jesus does introduce this supper to us, remember, he's taking the Passover meal, which you've, the Jewish Seder, And that Passover meal is a celebration of the greatest redemptive event of the Old Testament. It is what confirms Israel as the people of God, as his chosen ones. The very promises that he gave to Abram way back in Genesis 12 come to fruition through the covenant at Sinai and eventually through their rescue from Egypt. And it is there that Yahweh begins to establish that covenant. We see the redemptive history that flows ultimately to us through Jesus. And that meal is a celebration because you're looking at the fact that you have now been turned away the wrath of God, taken out of slavery, had your guilt cleared, brought into right relationship within the family, and are in the process of becoming one of his children. So ideally at this point, when we look at this bread and Yes, I confess it's difficult to establish unity from this itty-bitty thing. But normally we would have a loaf. At least pre-COVID we might have had a loaf. And the point of that is to symbolize the unity we have as a body of Christ. The fact that we are one. And we come to the table, I am not the host, he is the host. He is present with us, he is present with us in the elements as we recall all the benefits that he has given, freely given leaving the realm of heaven completely, coming into a dirty, dusty old Palestine to live in poverty and yet to willingly do all that he has done for us. So as we take this, remember the goodness and beauty of your God and Savior.
And the cup that he offered then obviously was one of the cups in that Seder. And he describes this as the new covenant in his blood. And I'm always mindful of that image. I'm so glad he walked through (laughs) those bodies, that he knew that he would be faithful. May we appreciate the faithfulness and goodness of our God and Savior and the new covenant we share with him. 